Coming up, what are we going to do about these COVID-idiots? The ones in Downing Street, I mean. Wherever did people get the idea that the danger had passed from? Plus, Brexit is back in the headlines, and it's going just as well as before. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast. Why have one crisis when you can have two? We do have a lot to get through with the UK seemingly going all out for a no-deal Brexit, something we'll get to in a little while. We'll start, though, with this alarming rise in coronavirus infections. New cases confirmed by testing have basically tripled in a little over a week. That's seen more localised restrictions in places like Bolton, Glasgow and Caerphilly. But it does feel a little bit like the horse may have already bolted. A significant chunk of these new infections are among young people. Now, it has been a crap time to be young. Schools and universities have been closed for months. Their entire future has been up in the air. There was the chaos around exams and on top of that being basically confined to your home for weeks on end. It is not surprising that at the first sign of restrictions easing, they tried to make up for lost time. Now, of course, those younger people, some of whom do seem to entertain some kind of immortality myth, return home to pass on the coronavirus to their grandparents, who, of course, could then die three weeks later. Now, let's be clear. People are responsible for their own actions. It was never safe to resume normal life. It was never safe to hang around with large groups or to pop into each other's homes parties. Certainly, it wasn't safe to head to the edge of the Brecon Beacons or a rave with 6,000 others. But let's also accept that our leaders can't escape responsibility either. Some government ministers have acted at times as if they were the Secretary of State for Pret-a-Manger, insisting the global economy would collapse if we didn't all get back into town and city centres and fill our bags with tuna and cucumber baguettes. Meanwhile, at the precise point that we really needed it to work the testing system grinds to a halt in large parts of the country. Perhaps this is all part of the government's bid to boost the tourist industry. While you are off work with potential coronavirus, what better time to enjoy the great British countryside on a long, fever-ridden drive from Exeter to Swansea or Leicester to Llandudno and back again? So if people have, as the Deputy Chief Medical Officer says, been too relaxed over the summer, where did they get that idea from? That's where we'll start as we bring in Robert Meakin. Robert, it's time to go on holiday. It's time to go to the pub. It's time to eat out to help out. Here, have a half-price Nando's. Oh, by the way, get back to your office because otherwise, you know, you might lose your job. What did they think would happen when you reopened vast areas of life and told people, oh, just enjoy summer safely? I take no pleasure in saying that this was a pretty inevitable development. I don't think that's rocket science saying that. And I have sympathy in in regards that this is an impossible balancing act. You've got a a government that's desperately trying to save livelihoods while trying to protect lives, a a tricky combo to put it mildly in 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 our current state. 
And as soon as you say we start to open things up, I think just people naturally have started to relax a little more, naturally started. A lot of people anyway, have started to take more things for granted. Maybe there's been a, a denial in, in, in some instances. And, and yes, it has come back to bite us. But I think this was always going to happen. I think the idea of opening up the country in a way that was completely safe while trying to get the economy going is, is just an impossible equation to square. There are always going to be risks. And we're just seeing evidence of that. You know, some of those who've advocated a fast a return to normality have kept saying, well, the younger you are, the lower the risk the coronavirus presents to you. And it kind of fosters this idea that that population are basically immune, you know, and there's no risk, there's no danger at all, as long as they don't go anywhere near anybody older. Which seems to be a, a, a fairly a fairly difficult sell, you'd have thought, that you know, for, for the young. I mean, the young have had a real you know, bashing, haven't they, from a lot of the, the old school mainstream media of late, that they're the irresponsible ones, they're the ones that aren't going to make the sort of sacrifices required. I suspect that's probably pretty harsh. And in reality, it's only the minority that we see. They're out partying in, in big crowds and all the rest of it. The message now about, you know, don't kill grandma sounds rather stark, but I also have to say it is rather, such such a slogan is starting to stick, I have to say, however, however crass it may seem. I think it's certainly infiltrated the national consciousness in the last 24 hours. I I think this should have been the message from from day one. If you're going to go out, just bear in mind that you might inadvertently kill your gran. The government you know, has stepped up the warnings in the last few days. They're imposing tougher restrictions on the worst affected areas. And, and Matt Hancock goes in the Commons and says this should be a wake-up call for us. Maybe it should be a wake-up call for ministers too, because... Not only has the government's message been, you know, go out, go shopping, go to school, go to work, in the background has been this kind of, oh, but stay alert. You remember when this this idiotic stay alert message came out back in May? You know, we talked about how it could be used to shift the blame away from the government to the public if there was a rise in cases saying, well, we told you to stay alert and, well, you know, you didn't listen. And now Granny's dead, isn't she? I, Governments have to lead. You know, if you want people to take this seriously, you've got to show them that you take it seriously. And perhaps prattling on about half-priced chicken dinners wasn't a winning strategy. The narrative right to the top, obviously, to Boris Johnson has, been, has certainly been, to put it politely, uh, muddled at times. It would be a, a miracle, to be honest, if we'd been sitting here now after all these months saying, Do you know what, I, in hindsight, I think the government handled this really well. I don't think any government we would have expected to handle such an unprecedented crisis particularly well. They've been having to react to all manner of traumatic events as we've gone along. That said, I think this has proved yet again that you know, Boris's strengths uh, have not been exposed, to put it politely, uh, during this time. Boris instinctively as a politician is an upbeat character. He's a master campaigner. But I think when it's come to a detailed, responsible, sober message, that's where he's found wanting. It has been inconsistent. It's been all over the place. And I think it's shown up his, his worst weaknesses. Of course, what is meant to save us from a second wave is the test and trace programme. Well, we already know that the trace bit's not going brilliantly. What about the tests? You can get a test as long as you're happy to drive long distances while potentially contagious with a fever and the occasional coughing fit. Now, of course, look, some people just instinctively feel they can safely withstand the long trip from, say, North London to Barnard Castle. But others might think it makes more sense to be able to get a test near to where they live. Ministers have said they are concentrating testing capacity in hotspots, but the price of that, it seems, 
is that places like, say, huge chunks of London end up with no testing capacity. With all these anecdotal reports of people in hotspots like Leicester saying they can't get a test, and idiotic things like somebody in North Devon being told, oh, well, your nearest test centre is, is Swansea, which would be very near if you could fly. And that's been one of the huge logistical failings of this government strategy so far, when we've in fact given, been given this message that we were going to have a, a, a testing process that threatened to be world class. Reality is that you could be expected to drive you know, anything up to 200 miles to get the said test. Well, most people's day to day lives don't particularly allow that. It's been a huge failing, again, as, 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 an, as another regrettable part of this government's performance in terms of its overall planning, that the framework just hasn't been there to make it workable for people. And yet right now this get back to work narrative is continuing we're still being told that you know offices are safe i can't help thinking the chief reason that offices are safe and that there's a very low incidence of coronavirus being spread in offices is because nobody's been in them it's quite hard to catch the virus from a person who's not there in a building you're not in but matt hancock then says oh there is a heightened risk of a second wave as we move into the winter because people will spend more time indoors and they'll be mixing with other people well People mixing with other people indoors sounds an awful lot like an office. The cynic in me wonders if maybe the calculation was, look, we do know children and people of working age are at a much lower risk of serious complications and coronavirus than people who are older or who have existing medical conditions. We know that returning to school and work probably does raise the risk of infection, but the majority of people who get it are going to have a mild or moderate illness. It isn't going to kill them. And if you feel that the bigger threat is to the economies of town and city centres, you know, maybe it doesn't matter so much if people at low risk contract the virus. That, of course, is herd immunity. If you were putting a logical plan together, the two things... You know, you just don't go together, do you? Do as you say, you know, yes, the government wants to get people back in offices. They desperately want to get people back in city centres because they want to get the wheels turning again in the economy. They don't want ghost towns. They don't want ghost cities. But at the same time, that, that comes with considerable risk, as you say, particularly during the winter months when this damn thing's expected you know, to come back, you know, potentially with a bit of a vengeance. So it's very, very difficult to square. Interestingly, what you say about offices as well, that there's still a very, very ferocious lobby saying people can only be trusted to work. They can only do proper jobs when they're actually in the office. Now, of course, there's a huge percentage of, of Britain's workforce that needs to go from A to B to work. Of course, I get that. But also there's a rather significant percentage now due to the marvels of technology that don't necessarily need that. And plenty of people, of course, have, have managed reasonably well working from home. I just do not believe it. Whatever the government says, I do not believe it's going to go back to where it was. I don't think technology will, will allow that to happen. I just, and I don't think logistics and, and frankly, the, the risks uh, currently attached will allow that to happen. I think this does mark something of a sea change. Now, you might think that the apparent start of a second wave of coronavirus would be enough chaos for any one government, but you would be underestimating the soaring ambition of Boris Johnson. Because now it seems is absolutely the right time to get tough with Johnny Foreigner, as the latest Brexit deadline hurtles towards us. Less than a year ago, Boris Johnson renegotiated the EU withdrawal agreement, including the imposition potentially of a customs border in the Irish Sea. 
something that Theresa May said no British prime minister could ever sign up to. Now he says he didn't understand it and he'd like to drop it, resembling not so much a prime minister as a dodgy second-hand car salesman whose catchphrase would be my word is not my bond. Now, the EU's attitude is, well, tough. You signed it, you stick to it. And if you don't, how are we supposed to trust you in any other deal we might reach with you, like, say, the free trade deal you're supposedly trying to negotiate in the coming month? And Robert Johnson's argument, apparently, is that he did not understand the deal or what it meant. And now that he does understand it, he would like to change it. So it's good to see that he's bringing the same relentless attention to detail that has made the response to COVID such a roaring success. Yeah. And I think this is this is more about a prime minister who's been well and truly on the ropes for several months. The route to his success at the election was saying he was going to get Brexit done. A significant part of the country backed him to do this. They gave him the benefit of the doubt. And now he's trying to seize the initiative again. And yes, he'll bend the rules in whatever way he can to try and seize that narrative and look like he's on the front foot. He's the person who's taking it to them. He's the person who's going to get us that deal. Now, if you still believe Boris's approach to Brexit, you'll think he's being courageous, bold, no nonsense. He's doing the right thing. Or you might suspect him to be full of uh, hot air, to put it very politely. And this is this is just this is a man who's just making up as he goes along. Depends which side of that argument you fall on. What is true is that Brexit you know, fuels the, the the Boris the Boris myth. To be frank, to be frank, that's what he wants us to believe. And I think this is just all part of Boris just trying to regain his mojo. To be honest. Now, just to smooth things over, he said that if you don't do this agreement by the middle of October, then we just got to accept no deal and move on. Now look. In a way, that sort of states the obvious, because if you agree a deal at the end of November, you're not going to get it signed off by the end of the year when the transition period comes to an end. Of course, you could always have asked to extend the transition period earlier this year at the height of, say, of the pandemic, but that, that was a political decision that we would not do that. And Britain does have a bit of a track record of setting these do or die Brexit deadlines and then missing them, at which point we act like somebody who's running for the bus and missed it and pretends they didn't want it anyway. You know, Boris Johnson, I remember about a year ago, was saying he would rather be dead in a ditch than delay Brexit at the end of October last year. And we know how well that went. We do have a prime minister who can say the most dramatic things, like the said soundbite you just mentioned, and then expects to forget it just a few months uh, later. It's all part of this poker game really is, is, is us making all these sorts of noises, the EU saying, absolutely not, that won't be possible. And in the end, if, if you were going to be optimistic about a deal being reached, you'd say that both sides will be able to walk away with a deal done, both claiming they've got what they've wanted and they've both, they can both claim some sort of victory. Uh, senior politicians are, are masterful at doing that. They've done that through the ages. And don't be shocked if that's the way this still plays out. Or we've got another scenario, which, of course, the government are, are bullish about presently, that we just don't get that deal at all, that we walk away without it. And the government, the British government will, will still claim this was a victory, a master strategy on their part, while the EU will doubtless say this is a very sad day for all concerned. I mean, the wider implications of this are, are slightly alarming. You know, ministers have admitted that their plan to drop elements of the withdrawal agreement would break international law. You've got the most senior lawyer in government resigning. It is hard to see how you could aim to go around the world signing trade deals when the very first deal you tried to negotiate potentially falls apart because you have broken your promises. Between then and now, I think we'll, we'll, we'll 
we'll know of plenty in inverted commas broken promises from this government. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't think uh, that the, the, it will end with this particular one. And I'm doubtful that we'll be sort of banging on about this particular broken pledge close to the time if, when the government are theoretically trying to make global deals. I think there's going to be so many ho- more holes and contradictions emerging between then and now. To be brutally honest. And meanwhile, it's a legitimate question to ask where the Labour Party is in all of this because the opposition jumps on every single coronavirus-related failing, but is surprisingly quiet as the Brexit talks hang in the balance. And I mean, this is not an easy thing for Keir Starmer, because every time he talks about Brexit, it gives Boris Johnson an opportunity to go, oh, oh, here's the king of the Remainers, the man who wanted the second referendum, wanted to undo the democratically expressed will of the British people, etc., etc. So, you know, they'll all, let's just keep quiet. Let's just make, wait until it goes away. The problem is, Keeping quiet about Brexit and hoping it goes away is exactly the policy that Jeremy Corbyn adopted as Labour leader, and it didn't go brilliantly. Of course, it's a tricky one for Keir Starmer. My goodness, and what a, what a start it's been for him as you know, leader of the opposition in the middle of a pandemic. You know, he's hardly really been able to uh, establish himself as he, as he would have wished, you know, and he's having to, I think, take a very cautious line. I think he's damned if he does and doesn't, to be honest, because... If if he starts now, I think, trying to pick too many holes in, in the government's approach, he will still be seen as that Island, Islingtonian bitter remainer, you know, and, he'll, and it'll look a bit like yesterday's man, to be honest. I actually do approve the strategy that he's got that probably keep your power to dry. The government could get itself in all sorts of tangled messes. And I think there is a there's a time to pounce a little later in the day. This is, Starmer's in this for the long haul. And I don't think trying to punch holes in the government right now over a political argument, particularly as we're, you know, in the middle still essentially of a of a pandemic isn't really a strategy that's helpful to him. Further down the line, I think you'll see him come out all guns blazing when we start to get an idea of where this government really is heading post-Brexit. I, but I say, as of now, I think keeping his powder dry, relatively speaking, is, is, a, is a rational and sensible strategy. It's less than a year since Boris Johnson led the Conservatives to their best election victory in more than 30 years. And yet already... Some Tories are saying things like he's safe for the next year. There is a rising unease in the Tory party at Boris Johnson's performance. And you can understand why. It's a government with a majority of 80. Governments with that kind of majority are not supposed to be blown around too much by public opinion. But this one's been forced from one U-turn to the next, chopping and changing on testing, on face masks, on exam grades, repeatedly being shamed by Marcus Rashford. You know, Boris Johnson is supposed to be this guy with his finger on the pulse of what Britain thinks. And it really hasn't looked that way for a long time. You know, you often say, you know, he's built his reputation on being this japester, this sort of non-politician almost. And the problem is he's become prime minister at precisely the time that you want someone of substance, of seriousness. It is not the time to have a clown, a comedian in charge of things. And his government has started to attract the look of incompetence and that voters will forgive a lot. And we've seen in the last year, everything that's gone wrong, all the U-turns, all the problems, a lot of voters have been willing to give Boris Johnson the benefit of the doubt. They'll forgive lots, but incompetence is usually something they won't forgive. And now is definitely not the time to convey the impression that you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, nothing's off the table politically now yeah because of what the, the, the trauma everyone has uh, endured over these last few months 
who knows where we would be uh, by, say, the argument's sake, spring next year. It wasn't long ago we thought, that's it, Boris Johnson, Tory prime minister for the next five years after he won that, uh, that last election. But now, who knows? And the Tory party are brutal when it comes to leaders, as we know. I mean, right now, they're not, they're not going to sort of remove Boris Johnson next week. But, you know, if, 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 if the months went on and it looked like he was, he was he was completely lost control, authority, credibility, if, say, for argument's sake, the, the Brexit became more problematic, you don't ever rule out the Conservative Party suddenly you know, pulling that, that, that trap door because they've done it so many times before. While I think the, the Labour Party sort of tied themselves up in all manner of knots when it comes to getting rid of a misfiring leader, the Conservatives just don't mess around. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's good drama, certainly. We, we've, we've witnessed it in, in recent years. And uh, so Boris will be, you know, would be wise just to just occasionally look over his shoulder because these people cannot be taken for granted. There's a lot of ruthless scheming backbenchers who, who might not do him any favours a little further down the line when he's weaker. A brief apology now to the Liberal Democrat MP Leila Moran. In a podcast over the summer, we suggested that she was building momentum in the party's leadership contest and she was the probable winner. And like almost every prediction we have ever made, this has turned out to be spectacularly inept. Uh, in fact, Sir Ed Davey won by a two-to-one margin and in a victory speech designed to cheer the heart of every Liberal, said it was time to wake up and smell the coffee. His job, Robert, is to rebuild the Liberal Democrats to national relevance. It's a great start. Thank you for electing me as the leader of this utterly irrelevant party. It's something of a step down from Jo Swinson, who last November was naming herself as Britain's next Prime Minister. I have sympathy for their position because obviously they don't have um, many seats presently. When they try to be bullish, when they try to present themselves as, as natural leaders in waiting, they meet with mockery and almost their credibility sinks. But if they try to be anything else, they're also dismissed as irrelevance. I mean, they're still coming out of that you know, staggering disaster. Uh, that was the, the election when they were massacred post you know, Nick Clegg's uh, uh, time in the coalition government. You know, I've said before, I think with the Liberal Democrats, I suppose what, what, what would they hope to do? I think they would hope to rebuild themselves more and more you know, on, on the, with, as a local base where they've always traditionally been strong. They've always had a reputation for, for performing well, relatively well in council elections, taking over more councils strong in by-elections often. They've, got, they've always had a good good campaign team in those little pockets. But it, it does seem like a long, long road ahead. I think Ed Davey looks a you know, perfectly competent, relatively amiable sort of bloke. Is he going to capture the public imagination when, you know, we've got Keir Starmer and Boris there? It, it's, hard, it's hard to see that presently, to be honest, but uh, we'll see how he does. For now, for now it, looks, it looks a long shot that he's going to make much of an impact. A brief moment of praise, finally, for the remaining members of the Jeremy Corbyn fan club, who increasingly resemble those Japanese soldiers found hiding in the jungle after VJ Day, unaware that the war was over. They had a very busy August bank holiday, hijacking a Twitter poll, which was run by Times Radio, on who was the best prime minister that Britain never had. So Jeremy Corbyn may well have led Labour to its worst general election defeat in nearly 80 years. But Robert, he won a meaningless Twitter poll with a self-selecting sample. And, you know, in many ways, that's the real victory. 
Oh, yes. I think we've all been proved wrong now by that by that Twitter poll. I noticed, to be fair, I believe it was Times Radio that conducted the poll. And even the person who'd, who'd originally uh, arranged uh, the said poll uh, did point out it was done in a rather tongue in cheek way. So I don't think we can read too much into that. I, I think it's probably wiser to uh, read into the fact that he did lose two general elections rather than a, a particular Twitter poll. I don't I don't think the nation as a whole is screaming out for that uh, that elusive Corbyn comeback. You say that we can't read too much into this, and even the people behind the poll said don't read too much into this. Jeremy Corbyn recorded a thank you video. Yeah, indeed. He, he did a video He did a video where he said, well, well, I don't think the establishment saw this coming. <laughs> it's delightful. It's given him a little bit of comfort as he tends to his allotment. But my God, hasn't a constituency MP in the middle of a pandemic got better stuff to do? Yes, I'd say, yeah, he wanted his needless to say, I had the last laugh moment. But it did, it did suggest a man who isn't sort of around reality <laughs> as frequently as he should be presently. I mean, I still there is an arrogance to Corbyn. There always was that, you know, whatever the result. Well, I think we all know, ladies and gentlemen, that I was right all along, really. And I think I don't think he's going to lose that uh, anytime soon. Well, I'm, I'm happy he's happy. Enjoy your victory. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Don't forget there is more on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Party Games Pod and a Party Games Podcast you can find the entire archive as well as links to subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google. For now, though, thank you to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.